Many people in our American context, to the extent that they think about God at all, think about him as fundamentally a transactional being. So God is someone we can bargain with, someone we can cut a deal with. God's even willing to cut deals with us, thankfully. The associations that this brings up for many, the more cynical among us, is that church is nothing more than an elaborate, very old business. Church is all about money, making money. Pastors are always asking their parishioners for money. And then we have these shows on TV with pastors driving around in the most outlandish vehicles, strutting their stuff through the town, There goes my pastor. A famous comic once put it like this. The church has billions of dollars, pays no taxes, but always needs a little more. Sadly, very much preaching in the church today reinforces this idea that church is all about money. I trust I need not tell you too much about prosperity gospel preaching. This is a very insidious form of preaching, which sadly has had very much impact in America. A pithy aphorism from a well-known prosperity preacher goes something like this. You get spiritually rich, and you'll get financially rich. You get right with God, and you'll get right with money. Or, you give to God, and he'll give to you. Normally, the things in this conception that God has promised to give you are material. They're not normally the fruit of the Spirit. It's normally, if you devote yourself to God in this way, sidebar, via giving us money, God, you shouldn't be surprised, will reward you monetarily. As I'm sure you know, this teaching is very harmful. Many people hear this teaching and respond to it dutifully with a sum given, a fee paid, and the expectation that God will respond as the preacher has indicated He will. But sadly, God does not always reward us according to what we give. God does not play business with us. Many people failing to receive from God what they've been prepared to receive conclude, A, that God does not love them, or B, that he might not exist at all. This type of teaching is appealing to us because it seems sound as a principle. We see this play out in our everyday life. We give to people, and we're not surprised when they do something kind in return. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. We expect God, though, to operate as we might. We expect God to give us something. 
We expect God to be the kind of God who will satisfy our fleshly desires because we all, in sin, serve those fleshly desires. But as we know, our God is an unexpected kind of God. Throughout the story of the scriptures, we find God consistently doing unexpected things, delighting to subvert the expectations of man. We have this, of course, most centrally in the gospel, where the Son of God himself took on flesh and was crucified on a cross. So God is an unexpected God who does unexpected things. One of these unexpected things God does is what's detailed for us in our passage this morning, which is to create an unexpectedly generous people. The kind of people God creates are not just generous, but they are unexpectedly generous. They're generous in a way we could not and would not predict. If word frequency were a sure indicator of importance, we could conclude that the most significant word in our passage this morning is grace. Grace comes up again and again and again and again. So while normally we want all of the sermons to be about the grace of God, this morning we have a passage which lends itself to such an interpretation. Today, we are looking at the power of God's grace in creating an unexpectedly generous people. The power of God's grace in creating an unexpectedly generous people. First, we need to say something about this collection that the Apostle Paul is making. He refers to it numerous times through our passage. He's awaiting and encouraging the Corinthians to complete the work of grace, which they've already begun. We learn of the nature of this collection in the book of Romans. The 15th chapter, starting at verse 25, goes like this. At present, this is the Apostle Paul writing, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Then he continues, For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. Paul, you remember when he was departing from the brothers at Jerusalem, encouraged them that he would not forget the poor. This is what they reminded him. Do not forget the poor at Jerusalem. We do know that Jerusalem at this time was a generally impoverished area. It was not a bustling city. There was not too much commerce passing through. And if you add the financial difficulties to the difficulty of being a Christian in Jerusalem, you can imagine a very tough situation for the Christians. People would have been highly skeptical of them. What is this new religion? We've 
talked about this numerous times before, the strangeness of this new religion and the disdain that it produced for many. Well, the Corinthian church was a different kind of church. Corinth was maybe the richest city in the Roman Empire at that time. It was positioned right on the sea, and it was one of the most trafficked seaports of the Roman Empire. The Corinthians would have known wealth, and this has been discussed as well by numerous scholars. The Corinthians were generally a very wealthy bunch. There would have been the poor among them, but there would have been as well many wealthy. Paul first appeals to the work of the churches in Macedonia to spur on the church of Corinth. So in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 through 3, we read, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Notice that key phrase right off the bat, the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Paul here is referring to the grace of God that produces this generosity. He's not referring simply to the fact that they've been saved by God. He is deliberately bringing out what their salvation is producing. The grace of God has been given among the churches of Macedonia. How do we know this? For, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. This is a very strange combination here. Abundance of joy and extreme poverty. It's almost a contradiction as he continues. Their extreme poverty and abundance of joy have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. We are right to think that most of the time, when people have less, they're probably willing to give less. This is natural for us. The less you have, the more you're going to want to keep what you have. Whether that is simply to survive or to sustain yourself and your family, we can't really fault people when they keep what they need. But what is going on with this church, these churches of Macedonia? They're surrounded by poverty, suffering, no doubt, but they have an abundance of joy. And this abundance of joy combined with their extreme poverty results in an outflow of generosity. Furthermore, this generosity is not what even Paul himself had expected. Continuing on, we read in verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. 
in verse 3, we have another key word. It's translated in the ESV as means, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. But that's not usually the way that this word is translated. This word translated as means in the ESV is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis. I was, list- I was listening to a sermon the other day, and I had always thought that this is where we get the word dynamic, and apparently it is where we get the dyna- word dynamic, but it's also the w- where we get the word dynamite, which is interesting. The means here you could translate as power. For they gave according to their power, as I can testify, and beyond their power. This word, dunamis, occurs over a hundred times in the New Testament, 117 times. And the vast majority of those instances refer to the power that God has as deity, the power that is intrinsic to his very being, a kind of power that we can't even begin to fathom. This is how we conceive of God as omnipotent, omnidunamis, all-powerful. Elsewhere, this word is used in the book of Corinthians itself to refer to God's unique power. But something that's very significant and sheds further light on its usage in our passage is that in the book of Corinthians, this power is always juxtaposed to human weakness. God's power is situated next to human weakness. It's fitting that our series title is Treasure in Jars of Clay. This image captures the thrust of Paul's letter. God is doing amazing things through decrepit vessels, through dusty containers. We have, for example, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The dunamis of God works through human weakness. And we have an example par excellence in the Macedonian churches who through their abundance of joy and extreme poverty yet overflowed in a wealth of generosity. God's power working in a poor people to give beyond their own power. It's worth considering all of the ways that God has empowered people throughout the ages to do the unexpected. Of course, we have the early church and their frequent martyrdoms, their willingness to die, and sometimes, according to numerous reports, cheerfully about to be impaled or crucified upside down or drowned. 
singing to God. Surely this would have signaled to the onlooking world that something unexpected is going on here. Have you taken stock of your own life? Have you seen unexpected changes? Have people noticed the unexpected in you? I love uh, watching videos of people's conversion. There's one YouTube channel, which you may all be familiar with, called I Am Second. They share a lot of testimonies of uh, kind of famous people, some more than others. Um, But often what, what they'll say about their conversion is that people noticed immediately that something was different. Where there was no joy before, the next day, they can sense that this person has changed. We need God's grace to act in unexpected ways. And God's grace was in clear, abundant evidence working through the Macedonians. It's important to understand that Paul is not shaming the Corinthian church here. He's not saying, look how amazing they are. They're poor and they're doing all of this great work. And you, who are relatively well off, have still not completed the mission, have still not gone all in with your funds, with your gift. But he's not. He's appealing to example. Example is very powerful. It's one of the most powerful modes of teaching is to give people examples, to illustrate. This is a good illustration, a great illustration. But Paul doesn't stop with an illustration of great work among fellow believers. He appeals back to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to spur on their good works. So we read starting in verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Paul has already told the Corinthians of the amazing display of God's grace among the Macedonians. Now he wants to remind them of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already mentioned that the Corinthians were familiar with wealth. More than that, they were familiar with the accoutrements that normally accompany wealth, fame, power, prestige. One commentator writes of Corinth at the time, wealth and ostentatious display were the hallmark of Corinth. Wealth and ostentatious display. Self-important show-offery. 
many think that the allure of these worldly attractions can at least in part explain the rift between Paul and the Corinthian church. Pastor Eric has been discussing with us Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians. And last week, he discussed how he was overjoyed, Paul, to hear that the Corinthians were back in Paul's good standing, wanted to work with Paul, and that they were all in for the work of the gospel. Pastor Eric also mentioned these super apostles that are supposed to have come into the Corinthian church, leading them astray, or at least causing them to doubt the authority of Paul, at least raising the question, is this really someone you should be following? And the reasonable assumption is that they would have said things like, look how weak he is. He's always traveling. He's not very impressive, is he? He doesn't speak like the philosophers. He doesn't command a crowd by his rhetorical flourishes in any way. And so the Corinthians might have thought, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's how, a, that's how a leader should be, right? A leader should be very impressive, embraced by the world, looked at as just this amazing person, a popular guy. And this is not who Paul was. And Paul plays on this sarcastically throughout his letters to the Corinthians. So you'll, you'll hear him say things like, uh, we do not boast in worldly wisdom, but in the power of the cross. The, the message of the cross is hidden to those of the world. Wealth and ostentatious display were the hallmark of Corinth. And Paul would have been the antithesis. But even more, would our Lord Jesus Christ be the antithesis to that? And so Paul appeals to his work in verse 9. You know the grace, there's grace again, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We cannot understand this merely as a reference to Christ's financial standing throughout the course of his life and throughout his ministry. Numerous commentators have remarked on the fact that he would have been poor, but that he might not have been the poorest. He was a carpenter, so he had a job. And over the course of his ministry, he had benefactors, some of whom would have been wealthy. So it's not fundamentally about his financial situation. There is that component, and it's important, important for us to grapple with it, but that's not the essence of what Paul is getting at here. Here, Paul is referring to the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, his willing embrace of suffering, rejection, disdain, and death, who though he was rich, the eternal Son of God, existing forever, with his Father alongside the Holy Spirit, 
emptied himself, took on flesh, and embraced poverty. We have the most famous statement of Christ's humiliation in the book of Philippians. Philippians, starting in verse 6, we read, Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, did not count the riches a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The example of the Macedonian church is powerful, but here we have the pinnacle. This is the height of grace. This cannot be surpassed. The apostle is writing to the Corinthians knowing that the same grace that the Lord Jesus displayed in his earthly ministry and his suffering is already at work in the Corinthian church. A couple verses prior we read in verse 7. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This act of grace also signifies that these other evidences, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, love, are the work of the same spirit. Paul is saying you already have this grace working within you. He sees it. And he wants them to complete the work. In verse 11. So now finish it doing your well, doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Something, uh, one of the great revelations of the scriptures is that God looks at the heart. God sees motives. God sees your desires. God knows when there is a mixture, when there is good and bad. God knows when your heart is in something. We might have a tendency to separate these two things, separate desire from doing. We might think, if I do, that's good enough. If I do the deed, that's good enough. This past week, as I was working on this sermon, in my Old Testament interpretation class, we talked about tithing just a couple days before the sermon. Isn't that crazy? It's not that crazy. Um, And people were discussing pros and cons of of tithing and uh, good spirited debate. I, I think sometimes we might think that if we just do enough, what we're expected to do, that's good enough. And in many ways, God loves our giving. God delights in our giving. Of course, it's all throughout the New Testament. God delights in our giving. 
But Jesus often challenged people to do more than they might expect. So we have the rich young man, which Jesus didn't tell him to tithe. He told him to give everything away. We can think of the widow, the poor widow at the temple, who gave everything she had. Her heart was in the right place. Her heart was overflowing with generosity, even though she only had a couple of coins. God does works like that in and through his people all the time. God provides us with the power to be generous, to not only do what is good and what is right and what is beneficial, but to take delight in what is good and right and beneficial. Some of the first marks of conversion are changes in affection. Simply changes in disposition, in attitudes, in desires. God, by his spirit, has given the Corinthian church the desire, has given the Corinthian church the heart to do the right thing. And now Paul pleads with them, finish this good work of grace by God's grace. Reading further on in verse 12, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Here, it's very clear, Paul does not intend to burden the Corinthian church. He doesn't intend for this to be a loathsome chore. He already knows that they're willing. They're happy. They just need a little bit of encouragement. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. The picture here is of grace-filled reciprocity. We have an abundance. The church in Jerusalem needs help. Our abundance can supply people's needs. We have the final verse, a reference to the wilderness wanderings. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. At this time, the Israelites would have been wandering in the wilderness. And we all know that the wilderness wanderings represent maybe the most unpleasant period of Israel's history. They're just very, very annoying during the wilderness wanderings. 
almost unbelievably so. But what does God do for the Israelites as they're wandering? He sends them everything they need. He sends them bread from heaven, manna. In that story, not everyone gathers the same amount of manna. Not, the day doesn't end with everyone having the exact same amount. So Paul is not expecting here everyone will have exactly the same amount. Paul is expecting that within the church, in the economy of grace, people will have their needs met. That by God's grace, generosity would overflow. And that we would help one another. That we would love one another. That there would be this mutual affection put on display at least in part by the way we deal with our money. Last night, I started watching a very bad movie called Deck the Halls, which is a Christmas movie. And uh, my parents and I were watching it, and we stopped. It was late anyway, but even if it was earlier, we would not have gone any further. Um, so I don't know what the movie's about, really. Uh, so it's, it's not good for a sermon illustration or anything. Uh, but I do know that despite the plethora of terrible Christmas movies, there are a few really good Christmas movies. And I hope that I haven't offended any Deck the Halls fans. Uh, but A Muppet's Christmas Carol is maybe the uh, pinnacle of Christmas cinema. And I'm willing to debate anyone on that. Um, it's, it's easy to lose sight of when you're watching that movie just how Christian it is. It's really a story about conversion. We all know Ebenezer Scrooge. He loves his money. Maybe he doesn't love his money, but he just loves having money and other people not having money. Or more broadly, he loves seeing other people suffer. He's miserable. He loves seeing other people miserable. It's one of the great conversion stories, though, because by the end of the film, through his series of nightmares where he sees the ghosts of Christmas past, ghosts of Christmas present, and ghosts of Christmas future, he sees that his life is completely devoid of joy. There is no abundance of generosity. There is no grace. There is only tight fists. Of course, he wakes up Christmas morning and he can't wait to get outside. He's had this revelation that he's been living his life all wrong. He's not been taking care of those who he should be taking care of. He's not been kind. He's not been who God would have him to be. The final scene of the movie, we have all the Muppets come out, running around like crazy. Everyone just knows the same song at the same time. I don't think they'd rehearsed it before, but all the Muppets know this one song, Thankful Heart, which they sing 
and Scrooge is at the head of the chorus. And he says, summing up this abundance of generosity, with an open smile and with open doors, I will bid you welcome what is mine is yours. With a glass raised to toast your health and a promise to share the wealth. Generosity, unexpected generosity, is something that God does. God creates an unexpectedly generous people. The final thing to say about grace as we close is that it's fundamentally free. It's free and it's freeing. God freely ordained before the foundation of the world to save a people for himself, to create a people in the likeness and image of his son. The philosopher John Locke had a rather elaborate discussion of the nature of true freedom, but there are two components, he thought, to real, lasting freedom. The desire to do and the ability to do. God, by his grace, had given the Corinthians the desire and the means. God, by his grace, has given us very much. He has blessed us in many ways. God's spirit within us is meant to shine forth, is meant to overflow in a wealth of generosity. Towards that end, let us continue to pray that God would pour out his grace in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills, so that we would be a people testifying to the splendor of our Lord Jesus Christ, who being rich eternally, emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Amen.